Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America Podcast, Volume 80. Amazing show today. Uh, I have the opportunity to chat with somebody I've long admired and that I think is completely certifiably nuts because of his profession, because of the amazing resume that he's compiled within that profession, because of the danger that he is inherent in that profession, and because of the absolute maverick methodology he takes to attacking that profession. His name is J.B. Mooney. He is a two-time PBR world champion bull rider. He grew up about 20 miles north of where I live in North Carolina. He is just an amazing, amazing figure. And he's really mysterious. And he's almost mythical in the way that he operates and the way that he's tamed these bulls and the way these bulls have kicked his ass. I've watched him for a really long time. I mean, this guy went pro at 19. And as you'll learn in this interview, he has been through it, man. He has suffered awful injuries. He has everything that he's ever wanted because of riding those bulls. But he turns 33 years old in January, and it ain't easy to get out of bed anymore. And you know what it reminded me of as I've watched his career unfold and I've watched a ton of of television pieces that have been done on him because he is so interesting to me. And there was one done by Vice Sports that I watched that was about 15 minutes long, I think, or 20 minutes long. You guys should watch it if you haven't seen it. Whether you're a bull riding fan or not, this is a captivating figure. And it reminds me so much of maybe the single greatest piece of of sports journalism ever. That being the last American hero. The piece in Esquire magazine from 1965 written by the legendary journalist Tom Wolfe about Junior Johnson. uh, Who might be in a sport built on amazing characters, NASCAR. He might be the greatest character of them all, and that includes Richard Petty, and that includes David Pearson, and that includes Cale Yarborough and Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon and all of these guys that built NASCAR into this phenomenon. Junior Johnson ran moonshine. Junior Johnson was was the everyman from Wilkes County, North Carolina, out in the hills, and became, after this piece written by Tom Wolfe, this mythical, iconic person. I had the opportunity to sit beside Junior Johnson twice in the NASCAR Hall of Fame vote. Twice. And I couldn't even hardly, like, he caught me a couple times just staring at him. Like super weirdo, stalker, creeper, staring at the man, because since I was born, My father told me stories about Junior Johnson and running shine through the hills of North Carolina and beating the law, a bootlegger among bootleggers. And to me, that's about the coolest some of all time. And so when I hold somebody in that esteem, it tells you the esteem in which I hold them. And that's the way I look at JB. I look at him as this like guy from a bygone era who is completely immune and indifferent to all the crap that all of us are so consumed with today. And I admire it so much because I wish I was that guy.
And I had Travis run him down, and God bless him. How many times did I have to cancel this interview, Travis? Uh, I think we moved it twice on him. Yeah, twice. You even and, te- you text me Saturday. You go, you're gonna really hate me. Yeah, I need, yeah. I need to move it because we were supposed to tape with him Monday morning. Um, and I thought we were supposed to tape later this afternoon, and they got back and said he can do it Wednesday morning. I'm like, we gotta do, <laughs> we gotta move when we're taping, Marty, because I ain't moving it again. Yeah, JB might just come down here and whoop our ass. And I want you guys to understand one thing. It was worth every single second of the wait. Uh, I had very high expectations for this interview, which I normally don't do to myself because I don't want the letdown. I try to just let the interview be what it's going to be and let that ride because, look, here's the facts in our jobs. You can be a really adept interviewer and ask fair questions that you hope result in really interesting answers of depth. But that's really on the interviewee, if you think about it. And J.B. Mooney brought the heat. <laughs> I uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear this one. He's also We've do- had a really good run lately. He's also doing this interview with a busted shoulder. And by busted, we mean like dislocated, separated, everything, whatever you want to call it. Blew apart. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 blown completely apart. And also, just so y'all know, as a little bit of a disclaimer. He's out in the middle of some field in nowhere, Texas, running cattle while we did this interview. So it gets a little windy here and there, and the cell signal gets a little dicey here and there. But I don't care. That's exactly how it's supposed to be well, that's what I love when you're is, interviewing a cowboy. That's what I love is he's a legitimate cowboy. As he's said, a cowboy. He's not a bull. He is a bull rider, but he is a cowboy. Some bull riders aren't cowboys. And And I gave him the disclaimer I, my hope is that a lot of pbr fanatics and and real life cowboys listen to this and i gave jb the disclaimer before we started chatting i've been a fan of yours for a decade but i need you to understand that i don't know all the minutia about bull riding i don't know some of the terminologies all those things so some of these questions might seem really elementary so, so just ride with me. Before we get to JB, let's discuss Bowling Branch sheets. All right. So they sent me some of these. I, I told Travis, I got to have some of these sheets because I got to see what all the rage is about. Bowling Branch sent me some sheets and Laney and I put them on the bed. And I got to tell you guys, they are everything that they say they are. We should have told JB he's going to need these with all his. Uh... That's exactly where I was going with this. We got to get them to send some to JB for his ailing body. They would help his ailing body. I'm telling you, man, they are the softest sheets I've ever been on. They are the most comfortable sheets I've ever been on. And I'm not alone. These are the only sheets in the world that three U.S. presidents use. For a limited time, you can get Bowling Branch Luxury Flannel Bedding. It keeps you cool sleepers warm, and because they breathe so well, it keeps you warm sleepers cool. Shipping's always free, and you can try them for 30 nights risk-free right now, and you get $50 off your first set. All you have to do is go to bowlandbranch.com and use the promo code MARTY. That's $50 off at bowlandbranch.com with the promo code MARTY. B-O-L-L and branch.com 
with the promo code M-A-R-T-Y. And I'm telling you, I will, I'm a little bit skeptical. Like, how in the hell are some sheets really going to make my sleep that much better? Especially with, like, you like it cold and Laney is not like you. That's exactly right. I want to freeze half to death. I have a fan blowing right in my face, and she will go to bed in a hoodie because she's so cold. These sheets are amazing, and they, I don't, I wish I could describe what, the way that they feel. There's a texture to them that's different than, than other sheets. Like it, I know they probably have some cotton in them and whatnot, but there's a, there's a softness to them. You know how you can tell the difference between a really high end t-shirt and the way that t-shirt feels versus like a weave spun shrinks in the dryer like the t-shirt, t- the t-shirts that you get free at a, a game. Exactly. Exactly. That's the way I feel about these sheets versus sheets we've had in the past. And I love them. And I'm telling you, I told Travis, I have to know I, if, if we're going to be reading about them on the show, I have to know that they're legit. And they sent me some and they are the truth. Good work out of you, Travis. My previous experience with bull riding is many moons ago. I used to host something called the Budweiser One Night Stand. And it was a, it was a series of concerts where before every one of those concerts sponsored by Budweiser, we would do a Q&A with Dale Earnhardt Jr. and myself. And Budweiser would, would sometimes bring in some of their other athletes to be kind of co-interviewees with Dale Jr. at these events. We did one with Brandon Bernstein, who drove the the Bud King top fuel car in the NHRA. We did one with a couple of guys that were on Dale Jr.'s crew back in the day at the Sturgis Bike Rally. Now, that's a damn spectacle. And we did one one time in Seattle, and our guest that night was a guy named Ross Coleman. Ross was a professional bull rider at the time. He's since retired. And Ross was an amazing guy to meet. And I made a great, great, great big mistake that night because I tried to drink Budweiser for Budweiser with Ross Coleman. And let me tell you what, if you want to be on the precipice of meeting the Grim Reaper, try to go beer for beer with a professional bull rider. It's a a real bad plan. Dude, it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. And I had to fly the next morning. The next morning I had to fly across the country to Washington, D.C. to meet Laney at my brother-in-law Mike's house because we were going to some event or a wedding or something. And I am telling you, I was I was so bad off on that flight from Seattle to Washington, D.C., which is about a six or six-and-a-half-hour bird. I got up a couple of times during the flight and blew a motor. It was the most miserable day I may have ever had as a result of alcoholic stupidity. I will never, ever again try to go drink for drink with a cowboy. It's about the stupidest thing you could attempt. Only thing and trust be, me. Only thing dumber would have been to try to take his cowboy hat. Yeah, that probably wouldn't have been the best idea either. 
So here's my second experience with the PBR, which, by the way, they've invited us to Cheyenne Frontier Days, and they've invited us to National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas. Let's do a remote. So, yep, we got we, I got to go out there. We got to go check this out. Here is my interview on Marty Smith's America with two-time professional bull riding world champion, J.B. Mooney. As I say, it's a great pleasure for me to welcome in J.B. Mooney to the Marty Smith's America podcast. And, uh, hell, he don't live 20 miles from me. I should have just came out there to the house and we could drink some cold beer at 9 o'clock in the morning, J.B. But I want you to just describe the addiction that y'all have to ride these bulls. What is that? I try to explain it to people. You know, they, they always ask me why you keep going after being hurt. As many times as I have and everything, I say, well, it's something that, you know, once you do it, it gets in your blood, and you can't ever get it out. And it's, you know, the adrenaline. I mean, there's not a whole lot else compares to it. When you, you're you 92 points and step off, and everybody in that building's hooping and hollering, all your buddies are hollering and everything. I mean, you're 10-foot tall and bulletproof. There's no better feeling. How do you justify that? I mean, you could literally die at any moment. There's a whole lot of sports where we call them gladiators, whether it's football, whether it's auto racing. And there's danger involved in that. But in what y'all do, I mean, you could die, man. Oh, yeah. You know, and I always tell everybody, you know, heck, I can you know, I can walk out of the house and go down a set of steps, fall down, break my leg, or get in the car <laughs> and be in a car wreck. I said, you can get hurt doing anything. I said, yeah, you're more likely to get hurt riding bulls, but got to be willing to pay the price to do what you love doing. How would you describe the price you've paid? No, I'll be 33 in January, and my body is in the, about the same state as a 90-year-old man. What's it feel like to get up every day? Well, I mean, if it's cool weather, I'm pretty stiff. You know, when it just kind of cools off and gets kind of chilly in the mornings, it takes me a while to get moving good. But once I get moving, once, I, once you get me going, I'm hell to stop. Put me in that shoot, man. For somebody who's never experienced what that's like when you're when you're climbing on top of a bull and you're getting tied in there and you're getting ready to go, what's that sensation? Oh, it's it's like another day at the office. Once you when you're sitting on the top of them shoots and they say, All right, go ahead and you crawl off in there, everything has to be reaction. So I mean you really don't think about it a whole lot, but you know, I did a deal before the finals a couple of weeks ago and uh Put two guys that had never been on bulls or anything. We kind of showed them a few things and taught, tried to teach them, and then we put them on some bulls. And the first day, we went through shoot procedure, and I said, now crawl off in there and fill. And, boy, they, their eyes got real big when they said, I said, you feel the muscles. And them old bulls will lean on you. And smart ones, they get smart. They'll lean and match your leg between them and that shoot. People don't realize, you know, 1,600 pounds, they shift that weight over there. Your leg's stuck between steel and that bull. And they'll mash you, and but I mean it, it. It gets you fired up, just you know when them boys sat down on them. You know they were like, "Holy sh!" <laughs> I've seen where you said before that bulls are a lot, hell of a lot smarter than we give credit, than human beings give them credit for. D- describe the relationship between you guys and those bulls. Well, they're they're athletes too. Uh, you know, I always explain it to people. I, I tell them, you know. You see a fly land on a bull's back, and he swishes his tail around there and hits that fly. 
He knows where that fly is on his back. He knows exactly where we're at when we're sitting on there. He can tell our weight shift from one side to the other. And some bulls, they're just, they're the same all the time. But then you got other bulls, you know, that the real smart ones and the real good ones, they'll fail you. You know, if you they go to turn back to the left and you kind of move over there to try to cheat them around there, they'll feel your weight shift over there and boy, they'll hit and go back the other way. You know, they're smart. And I always say, if you set a trap, you get caught in it because I mean, working them and stuff, they're aggravating. Half time, they don't want to do anything you want them to do, like pinning them and stuff like that, sorting them. But you know, them bucking bulls have bucked for a while and they know what they're doing. They're, they're real smart. Bushwhacker was the probably the smartest bull I'd ever been on in my entire career because got on him 13 times, only rode him once, and out of the 13 times, he never did the same thing twice. Wow. Uh, you know, that that's one of the most indelible moments and, and iconic moments of your career was when you rode him, and not only your career, but hell, the, the history of the PBR. What was that moment like, man? After I'd been on him so many times, because it kind of got to where it was like a rival. I'm pretty hard-headed and stubborn, so I kept telling me, everybody kept asking, why do you keep picking him? Because it cost me winning a lot of events and probably won a heck of a lot more money than I did. But I don't go bull riding. Some of them guys go at it as a business. You know, that's how you make your living, but I don't go at it as a business. I, I'm not a whole lot of business thought put into riding a bull for eight seconds. But, you know, I, I wanted to prove to myself more than anything that I could ride him, and that's what I kept telling everybody. I said, eventually I'll figure him out. I said, he's only got so many chances. It took me nine times, and I figured him out. But And then the tenth time, I went right back to the drawing board because he slammed my ass. <laughs> Am I wrong that only two – you're one of only two guys that ever rode him? Am I right? or is that? Yes, sir. Marcus Merlute rode him. I can't remember if he was a three- or four-year-old. Marcus rode him, and there may have been a Brazilian guy riding, you know, at that time when he was a classic bull, a three- or four-year-old. But once he got out of the classic and kind of become bushwhacker, out of all those trips, I was the only one to ever ride him after that. One thing that intrigues me most about what you do is is the culture of the sport and the culture of the community and the passion that its fans have and that, that you guys have as competitors and lovers of it. Describe for me, what is that culture? How do you describe the bull riding culture? Oh, man, it's like a big family. I mean, you see these guys, you know, our finals were just over, you know, last week. And you get home, which I have to have shoulder surgery, so I'll be out for about six months. But the season starts back up, 1st of January. You go almost every weekend till May. Uh, you get part of May, June, July, and then they there's usually now they have one in July, and then they start back up every weekend from August till November. So I mean, if, if your family doesn't go with you, you, you see the other bull riders more than you do your own family. Sounds a lot like NASCAR. I covered NASCAR it, for so long, and you know it's Thursday to Monday, forty weeks a year. And yes, sir. That's about how the bull riding is. They don't they don't give you much of a break to heal up. What makes a great bull rider? Oh, in my eyes, you know, a lot of people say talent, but I always tell kids if you got heart and try, that'll that'll take you way farther than talent will. And when I was younger, I got on my first big bull when I was thirteen, and I didn't have the talent. I grew up with a guy that probably one of the best bull riders I ever watched in my entire life, Brian Kenner from North Carolina. He had all the talent, 
in the world. Like uh, anything he did, like wakeboarding. I mean, he'd get on that board and I mean, just pick it up right off the bat. Like this is how he was. And for me, it pissed me off most of the time because I mean, he would he'd get in a wreck and land on his feet and walk right off. And I was the other side of the coin over there. Only reason I rode and did good was because when I tied my hand in there, I meant for it to be there, and I didn't let go until my head hit the ground twice. But over the years, you know, I had all the try. I didn't have quite the talent and the correct way to ride them, and eventually I feel like I kind of figured it out. I watched a story about you, and, and one of your peers said it just comes easy to him. Is that a fair statement? No. Heck no. Bull riding something that I've worked at every day of my life since I can remember. Uh, there was a rule in my house when I was in elementary school that my homework had to be done before I got to watch bull riding tapes. That's all I remember ever doing. That's all I wanted to do. It was eat, sleep, bull riding every day of my life. If I could have got out of school and went home and just watched bull riding tapes all day, I would have. When I got older, it was I went to school and if I had a job, I would work. And as soon as I got off work, we went and got on practice bulls every day of the week. And then I got, we'd get on bulls. And then when I got to doing pretty good and got in the PBR, I bought some bulls. I'd always have 10 big bulls standing there at the house at all times. If I felt like I was riding bad or needed to work on something, heck, I'd come home and it wasn't nothing for us to get on. I'd get on six, seven bulls a day, 10 sometimes, every day of the week I was at home, and then I'd leave again and go to bull riding. Who'd you watch when you were watching those bull riding tapes? Before Jerome Davis got hurt, I watched I watched a lot of I watched a lot of the old tapes. Uh, I watched Tough Eating and Jim Sharp, uh, Jerome, and uh, Lane Frost mostly. Uh, I liked the way his style was, and he's got a actually got a pretty much a bull riding school on DVD. It's called Lane Frost Bull Talk. There's no telling how many times I had to get some more DVDs because I wore them out. I watched them so much. How did he inspire you? Obviously, he was a hero if you watched him that much, but anybody that knows his story knows that the game beat him. He died doing what you love. How has he inspired you? That's how every bull rider is or should be in my eyes. You know the dangers of the game, but if you love it enough, you're you're willing to take that chance to do it. I mean, I'm 32 right now. I'll be 33 in January, and I've never had a you know, since I've been in the PBR, I've never had a boss, you know. When I come home and do what I want to, uh, when I want to, and there's nobody standing there, I don't have a nine-to-five job. I pedal around and work cows while I'm at home and do things that I think is fun, and I get to work eight seconds at a time on the weekends. What started you on this journey? My dad rodeos. He never rode bulls or anything, and uh, he steer wrestled. He's a quite a bit bigger than I am in stature and uh so he was a steer wrestler and when I was three they started letting me get on sheep and I think when I was five they moved me to Kev's and you know they family wasn't really too excited about it but you know my dad he, he told me he said you know I thought when I, I said well we'll let him get on a few calves he'll get thumped once or twice he won't want to do this anymore <laughs> see that, how that turned out for him I saw that scar on your shoulder you got right now. Walk, walk me through what happened in the aftermath of it. Well, well, I was in Calgary two years ago at the Calgary Stampede and rode my bull, ended up winning the round. And just when you go to Calgary, man, you you pack for all three seasons. You never know what each day is going to bring. <laughs> One day you might go out there and it's 85 degrees, and the next day 
you come out there and it's hailing and pouring down rain. It got warm that day with my rosin kind of got pretty gummed up and sticky, which I ride my real, real sticky anyways. And But I guess just that heat that day got a little extra. And when the whistle blew, I was a little behind. I wasn't exactly where I needed to be. And when he kind of whipped me to the outside, I figured man, I was going to hang up to him, and, which that doesn't bother me. I, I was thinking, all right, well, I'm going to hang. And when he whipped me to the outside, my rope slid across his back. Well, I just drove me right up underneath him. And he stepped in my left armpit. I guess I had my right arm stuck out to catch myself. And when he stepped in it, I guess just the, the force of him stepping on me and hitting the ground, it, it dislocated my shoulder out the bottom side. And knocked me out a little bit. And he kind of spun around and saw me laying there and run back over the top of me. And I woke up pretty quick and couldn't figure out why my arm wouldn't work. Ended up, I completely tore my shoulder apart. Broke the, the humerus bone, the ball. Broke it in three places. They ended up when we did surgery. I thought it was just fractured. It looked like everything was in line. But when they opened the shoulder up, it uh, the fractures, it was, it, they were not just fractures. The bone was broke completely off. It was just sitting where it was supposed to be. So they'd take a chunk of the ball out. And then all my rotator cuff muscles were completely tore off the bone. My bicep tendon labrum took them six and a half hours put it all back together, put a screw in 13 anchors in my shoulder. I wasn't supposed to start riding for about six months, and I, I waited about four, and I went to the finals in November that year to try to ride, and everybody thought I was crazy, but I told them, I said, I can I can live with trying, but I, I, can't, I can't sit at home and think, what if? And so I went and probably came back too early, which in return tore it up again, and... And first of August this year, I was at Tulsa and kind of hit kind of funny on it. And I told Tandy Freeman, he's the one that did the surgery. And I went back there and said, it don't hurt. I said, but it don't feel, it just doesn't feel right. Like when I rotate my arm around, he messed with it. And he said, I think he tore your rotator cuff again. So I went and had MRI on it. And the main rotator cuff tendon runs across the top was completely torn in half. Another tendon was partially tore. And he said, I'd have to have surgery on it. You know, after the finals, he thought I could make it through the finals. And shoot, when I got to Vegas, I felt pretty good. And I ended up riding at the Velocity Finals a couple of days before the World Finals. And the last boy I got on there, he decided to use my head and my right shoulder as a T-post and drive it in the ground. And when I come out of the arena, I told him, man, that's when my shoulder's messed up bad now again. And we looked at it, and they, when I, I had MRIs last week because – I tried, I tried to get on at the World Finals, but my shoulder come out in the bucking shoot when I was trying to get on bull with the bucking, and I reached over and grabbed the gate. And just when he kicked it, my shoulder fell out. And so I ended up getting to sit in the back and watch the bull ride with a swing on my arm all week. Went at MRIs last week. I'm waiting on Tandy right now. As soon as he gets the results from it, he'll call me and figure out a game plan, see exactly what all's tore besides the rotator cuff because I know I tore some more up in there that's for sure <laughs> I don't I don't mean to juggle man but you're just so damn matter of fact about it and you ain't right like you're just not right y'all aren't right that is not normal that is not a normal human brain to to just talk about it so matter of factly when it's that dramatic an injury it's just not it's not normal man uh, that's what everybody says. They said, how, how do you deal with all that? You know, I blew knees out, shoulders, my, my hip. I'll probably have to have my right hip replaced 
whenever I retire from riding bulls, I can't do it now because, you know, I'd have to stop, you know, and uh, I said, I ain't dealing with that. You know, you get up and walk around, I said, I put one foot in front of the other. People don't understand it when I say you just get used to it, but, like, my wife, she used to try to get me, you know, she'd try to get me to go to a chiropractor. My back would get sore, and, you know, I told her, I said, I, I don't want to go, and she said, why? Well, I said, because I go there, I put everything back in line, I feel good, but then it's all back out of whack as soon as I get on the first bull, and it seems like it hurts more, you know, once it all gets crooked again. I said, if I leave it the way it is, I'm used to it. It don't, it don't you know, don't hurt near as bad. I was going to ask you what your wife says about all this. I know that she came up in the sport, and I know her father's a legend and all those things, but it's a different relationship when it's, you know, watching your daddy do it versus watching your husband do it. How does she yeah. react to seeing you get your damn head stomped in? She's pretty damn tough, and the only time I really, I guess she really ever kind of scared her was when I tore my shoulder up in Canada because it knocked me out. I was face down on the ground, and I pretty much looked dead because I wasn't moving. I was knocked out, but I, mean, I started moving pretty quick. Well, when they got to me and were talking to me, they said they were going to roll me over, and I said, all right. And when they rolled me over, they strapped me to a backboard. And I kind of had a few words to tell them about that backboard. And uh, they said, why are you so mad we put you on this backboard and on the, on the stretcher? I said, because I've been riding bulls professionally for 14 years, and I've never been carried out of the arena not one time. I said, I've got up and walked out on my own two feet every single time. And I said, right now, my shoulders hurt. There's nothing wrong with my legs. And But them putting me on that stretcher made it look 10 times worse than it really was. And so it kind of freaked her out when, you know, Hey, she made it around the Calgary Stampede Arena is a big arena. And boy, she had made it around and was behind the stretcher going out the arena before it made it out of the arena. <laughs> that was the only time like she's ever really been I guess kinda of made her nervous because it looked a lot worse than it was when they put me and that's what everybody thought. They thought I was hurt really bad. You know, when they, and I told them, I said, Well that wasn't that wasn't wasn't up to me, you know, when they rolled me over they strapped me to it and I said when we got in the back, they unstrapped me real quick, like, because I had a few words to tell them. They finally agreed to let me off that board. How long do you want to do this? I don't know. That's what I feel like as long as I feel like I can go and win and be competitive, I'll go. But the thing about riding bulls, your mind stays in it a lot longer than your body does. And eventually your body gets out and you just can't take it anymore. And I always told them that, the day I feel like when I show up, there's a bull there I can't ride. That's the last day you ever see me. What do you say to anybody who says you should hang it up now? I've told them before they can kiss my ass. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it's something it's hard to tell somebody. You know, that's what I don't understand. You know, people watch and everybody says, well, you're not the oldest guy on tour. I said, no. I said, but there's not very many guys that's been around as long as I have in the PBR. People, I mean, I, everybody that's, if they watch the PBR from 2006 till now, they watch me grow up. And I made my first world finals when I was 19 years old, and I've 14 consecutive finals in a row. And, you know, you see, they see you growing up and on there and getting, they see all your wrecks. And I wasn't the smartest when I was younger. I was a little more hard headed about taking care of things than I should have been. And, put off surgeries and didn't do surgeries and kept riding when I probably should have stayed at home. And it catches up after a while. I mean, 
I don't get out of the bed quite as fast as I used to. But individual sport, people tell me I need to retire, I tell them mind my own business. They're not doing it. They're not the ones putting their hand in their bull rope. They don't want to see me get wrecked out. Don't watch me. I agree. And I feel like it's it's – I do wonder about the psychology of it because in a lot of cases for a lot of people who are competitive and hard-headed, it's a very difficult thing to consider your identity. All right? You're a cowboy. You know, one day you're riding bulls and that's who you are, and then one day you ain't. How much of that yeah. weighs on your mind? It does. I mean, you know, I, there's times that I get to hurting and, you know, I read all that stuff where they say I need to hang it up. I'm has-been and everything, and I'm getting too old, too beat up, too crippled, and your mind gets playing tricks on you. If you're not riding good and stuff, you go kind of thinking, well, maybe I should. Maybe they're right. And but then I sit around and think, well, what am I going to do if I'm not riding bulls? <laughs> right. What do you think that answer is? What's that answer? Oh, I, well, we actually moved to South Texas down here where my wife's family's from now. And uh, so I got a lot more opportunities down here to do things that I like doing. But, you know, just we'll, we'll like the shoulder. Heck, I, I got to have surgery on it. That's going to put me out six months. It'll be a couple months before I'll really be able to move my arm around very good. So that puts a damper in everything right now. Guy called me yesterday, want me to bring some dogs and horse and go pin some bucking bulls with him. And I tell him, I said, man, I can't even saddle my horse. You know, I can't throw the saddle up high enough to get it on him. And I said, I can't swing a rope. I do everything right-handed except ride bulls. That's the only thing in my entire life I do left-handed is ride bulls. And so it kind of puts a damper on things. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what I'm going to do afterwards. I'm kind of slowly but surely getting back into bull business. I had bulls when i lived in north carolina and i sold most all of them and we moved out here and i bought some cows the other day and i'm gonna pill around mess with them because it's what i told somebody that's all i know how to do well i know how to do other stuff this is about all i want to do how did fatherhood impact your vision of of what you do that's what everybody you know that's another thing they bring up well, you got a daughter and you got a son now. You need to quit riding bulls and take care of your family. And I've told him, I said, you know, I said, that's exactly what I want to do. That way when my children get old enough to know what's going on, they watch a video and see me retire when the going gets tough. That is not how I want my children to be raised. And, you know, that's what I've always told them. I said, yeah, that's, that's what I want to teach them when the going gets tough, just to give up and quit. And I said, that's not me. I wanted to, I always said my entire, in my career, I said, I, whether I want a world title or not, I said, I want people to be able to say one thing about me when I hang it up and I'm done. They said, what's that? And I said, that I never had any backup in me. Who do you think is the greatest bull rider of all time? I don't know. Uh, shoot, in my eyes, Lane Frost was great, but his career got cut short. You didn't get to see his whole career because, you know, 26 or 27 when that bull killed him. And so you didn't get to see all of his career. You know you know he was going to do great things because of what he did before that. But I, I don't really know. I, Justin McBride where, was pretty badass when I come around. Where, where do you rank? Oh, I don't know. I don't rank myself up there in that conversation. I know it's hard to – I've asked that of – more athletes than I can count, man. 
And it's impossible to discuss your own legacy while you're still competing. It's in- impossible to rank yourself while you're still competing. But you know, all you got to do is all you got to do is ask your peers. And so many of yeah. your peers say that dude's the goat. That's what a lot of people they say. How's it feel to be the goat? And I said, Well, I don't, I don't know about all that. You know, I said, I'm still trying to figure bull riding out. <laughs> they look at me like I'm stupid. They're like, What? And I said, Bull riding is a sport where whether you've been doing it two months or whether you've been doing it twenty years, you better be working at it every day. On that note, I'll let you go with this. What's the greatest ride of your career? Is it Bushwhacker? Yeah, it'd have to be. Like, I made a lot of good rides that stick out in my mind, but the way the rivalry went, the amount of times I'd picked him before I rode him, that one was probably the the most memorable for sure because, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, he needs to quit picking him. He can't ride him. They kept talking him up like he was unrideable, and all that did was piss me off and make me want to pick him even more just to prove <laughs> everybody wrong and to prove to myself that I could do it. How big's the chip on your shoulder? I don't know if it, it the, if I don't know if the chip's real big, but the pride is. That, that's that's been my downfall my whole career. It's been it's what's got me to where I am, and it's made me who I am. But it's been my downfall also because I wouldn't change it for anything. I wouldn't go back. But you know, a lot of times I sit and you know people ask me all the time, "Do do you think back now? Do you wish you had picked different?" I said, "Well, I'd have made a lot more money. Probably could have won a world title, a couple more world titles, but." The thing about it, I did it the way I wanted to, and nobody can ever take that away from me. It's just so admirable. I've been a journalist for a really long time. I've been a media guy for a really long time, and this might be the greatest quote I've ever seen from you. People ask me what happens if you cripple yourself so badly you can't get out of bed, and I say, I guess I'll just lay there and think about all the good times I've had. Holy shit, man. That's un- that's an unbelievable perspective. That's a damn country music song. It uh, is. I, I, I mean, there's not there's a lot of people in this world who wake up and hate going to work. Hate it. You know, when I go to work, I get to ride bulls for a living. Been to Brazil, go to Canada, met. I mean, most of my friends that I have, I met from riding bulls. Met my wife because of bull riding, and. You know, everything I have came from bull riding. You know, I got to travel the world and do what I love doing, and there's not a lot of people get to do that. Ain't that the truth? I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for your yes, time and, and your insight, and uh, y'all have a great day, and I appreciate you, man. Yes, sir. No problem. Thank you. That interview with JB was brought to you by Quip. Quip is a very unique toothbrush, all right? The question is, what actually makes it better than your standard toothbrush. Industrial strength power? Claims of miraculous trendy ingredients? Multiple modes? Nope. If you ask your dentist, they'll tell you it's less about the brush and more about how you use the brush. That's why Quip was created by dentists and product designers to focus on what exactly matters most in your oral health. Quip's sensitive vibrations with built-in timers guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses ensuring an even clean. Let me tell you something. One of the greatest simple luxuries in life is the brand new toothbrush. I love having a brand new toothbrush. Having fresh new bristles is an amazing feeling. Yeah, and that's one awesome thing about Quip because they automatically deliver them 
they deliver brand new brush heads to you automatically every three months so that you have clean new bristles right on schedule. It has a sleek, intuitive design that's simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount so Travis can stare at his hair while he's brushing his teeth. These thoughtful features make brushing something you actually want to do twice every day. Good habits matter to live a healthier life, so help form fresh oral habits with Quip. Quip starts at only $25, and you'll get the first refill free at getquip.com slash America. This is a really simple way to support our show and start brushing better, but you have to go to getquip.com slash America to get your first refill free right now. Q-U-I-P.com slash America. I'm serious now. That is one of the simple pleasures in life for me is when I have a brand new toothbrush. First time I use it. It's like, man, that's getting my teeth clean. I love it. I told you guys that interview with J.B. Mooney was awesome. And I learned a lot. I learned about, he, like, it's interesting to me. He obviously has a chip on his shoulder. And I love what he said right there near the end about pride. His pride has made him and his pride might end him prematurely. And I feel like that might be a universal trait among those types of athletes because you have to be a certain brand of crazy to strap yourself into a race car every Sunday, for example. You have to be a certain brand of crazy to run a shallow cross across the middle of the NFL every Sunday. You have to be a certain brand of crazy and it's a it's a whole other plateau, as I said to JB in the interview, to strap yourself on a damn sixteen to eighteen hundred pound bull every weekend and try to make eight seconds. Eight seconds. It's funny. I say all the time. Only in like the dip. Time is so relative. Time can be a very relative, non-finite entity, because I talk about TV all the time. It's what I do for a living, so it's kind of on my mind often. 90 seconds in television is a lengthy amount of time, right? 90 seconds when you're waiting on Christmas morning, waiting on mom and dad to say, all right, man, you can go see what Santa brought. That feels like an eternity. Eight seconds on a bull when you're trying to tame this beast. It's forever. And... I loved hearing him discuss the pride that he had to keep going after Bushwhacker. One of the most notorious, they use the word rankest, is the, is the, the terminology in the sport. One of the rankest bulls ever in the history of the sport was Bushwhacker. And JB kept on going back for more because he had to for his own solace. He had to for his own appeasement of pride. He had to because he would never be able to look at himself in the mirror when it was all said and done if he hadn't tried. And I love that philosophy. Y'all know what what I say about that. I'd rather crash and burn and fail knowing I can't than wonder when I'm 80 if I could have. What I love the most was when asking about his kids in retirement, he goes, yeah, that's what I want them to see is when things got rough, dad retired. Right. Like, when you think about it, like, because people try to use kids as the reason why you should retire, but he's like, I'm showing, teaching them life lessons. And then it's why you don't. I'll close out that conversation by, by repeating. I, I just admire, I admire so much that, 
that optimum level of authenticity because it's not something that you come around every day and it's know who you are, be who you know you are, be unapologetic about being who you know who you are and, and live. I, I just admire it so much because so many of us are strapped by outside thought and outside opinion and outside noise. And I love that J.B. Mooney is J.B. Mooney. Another philosophy that I really appreciate is, and, and I, I've tried so hard to live this way, and as I wrote in my book, Never Settle, I haven't always taken the approach that, that I should have kindness first in my mind. My first thought should always be kindness. That's not easy to do in this world. It's just not. Because we're all moving so fast. And when the feedback is what it is so often in our professions, it's easy to get caught up in what that feedback is. And so I don't consume it very often. I admire folks like Mina Kimes, and I admire folks like Ryan McGee, and I admire my peers, Pat McAfee, who are so engaged in it. I I can't be. I've made the decision that it's not healthy for me. And so something happened about two weeks ago now that really changed me. It didn't change my philosophy towards my social media approach, but it did change my philosophy of what social media can be. And I'll try to give you guys the backstory for those of you who may not have seen it. And it's it's difficult for me to discuss. Travis had to talk me into this because I have not wanted to discuss this moment. Well, it's funny because I, I was one of the people that texted you about it because I knew that you weren't going to see it. Um, and then I said, we're having him on. And I know that you didn't want to really talk about it. And we've, we've text about it when it was, when this was going down. But I, uh, sometimes you have to be the producer and make the decision and force you to do something. And this was one of those times. It was you. It was Laney, who is my greatest compass in life and my about cap- and my captain and, and yeah, the captain of the, of the ship, man. It was, it was a team. It was you. It was Laney first and foremost above all, and it was my agent, Matt Kramer. You three all did not hesitate, and the reason that you did not hesitate is let's continue the kindness momentum. Okay, if that is the way that you three perceive what could happen here, then fine. I'm willing to do that. Here's what happened. I was at the Alabama LSU game in Tuscaloosa, Alabama two Saturdays ago. And it had been a long day, a very long day. I got up around 3.30 or so in the morning. I like being at work about an hour before I'm supposed to be on air. I like being on site so that my anxiety level about actually being there physically is quelled. Then I can sit down and open my laptop go over my notes again, look at my schedule blow by blow, minute by minute, hit by hit, so that I can say, okay, here's my checklist for the day. I'm starting at 6.01 a.m. Central Time on Sports Center. Great. I'm there at 5 o'clock, and I start going through what I might want to say on Sports Center. And then I did my morning, which included Sports Center, College Game Day, SEC Nation, Marty and McGee. 
and it was a pretty, pretty labor intensive morning. And then there was this lull from 11 a.m. until 2.30 local in Tuscaloosa. There was this lull. Well, I went straight into the stadium because the president of the United States was at the game. And I knew that that would mean of a much more stringent security measures. So I go into the game, into the stadium, into Brian Denny Stadium, and I just stood there on the sideline for a while. And I stood there until the game was over, basically. So by the end of that game, I'm pretty smoked. I had sent uh, requested of my buddies on the on the LSU staff if they might be able to go into the locker room and fetch me some coffee a couple times. My man Cookie. Cookie goes in there a couple times and gets me some frou-frou vanilla coffee to keep me awake. And then at the end of the game, we did all of our post-game interviews. Joe Burrow on the field, went to Coach Saban's press conference, went to Coach O's press conference, and Burrow's press conference. And then we come back out and we have our, our post-game, post-game hits to do for Sports Center, SEC Now, etc. At the end of all of that, I was absolutely smoked. And so I throw on my backpack and I have a walk to a golf cart that's going to take me to my car, which is about a mile away parked at a hotel. And there are myriad local reporters doing their post-game stand-ups. And these people are amazing, all right? I want you guys to understand something about being a local reporter for local newscasts, local news stations. They're in the, in most cases, they are one man bands. They do all of their post game interviews. They go to all the press conferences. They do all the player interviews on the field. Not only are they holding their camera, but they're holding a microphone too. All right. They're trying to get a shot of a player and hold the microphone out so that the player can be heard all at the same time. It's hard as hell. All right. Well, it appears to be hard as hell. I say that I've never had to do that. Okay. That's one of the great blessings of my ESPN life. ESPN gets us the best camera people on the planet. ESPN supplies us a producer to help us keep our heads on straight every single weekend, every single assignment. That's an unbelievable blessing in our business. And we have the best in the business. And so I'm watching all these local reporters who are set up in the stands to do their live shots or their taped elements about the game that will run on the 11 o'clock news that night. We couldn't be on the field at Bryant-Denny because the field staff needs to get the field um, prep recovery underway. So all of us are set up in the stands. Well, I'm as far from the exit to Bryant-Denny Stadium as you can be, on the other end of the stadium. So I have to walk across a lot of, a lot of shots in order to get there. Well, the closest one, there's a young man standing there, and he's he's trying to tape a – He's trying to tape a stand-up, which is the hardest damn thing to do in our business. I can't stand them because there's a major difference between live and taped. When you are live, if you stumble speaking, you simply plow right through it. I misspoke. Let me correct that if it's a correctable mistake. Or let me just move right along because I stumbled in my cadence or my speech. When you're taped, that doesn't apply. Because why? Because perfection is the expectation. And I don't care who you are, perfect's hard. Like I can't, I can't stand to sit there and watch Tom Rinaldi do it because 
Tom's a one-take Tom. It's the most amazing thing you'll ever see in your life. The guy never busts. He is so good at his job. It just makes me sick. <laughs> anyway, I'm watching this young man, Jack Patterson, try to do his stand-up. And I see him bust once. I then see him bust again. And I just felt led to walk over to him because I felt like he needed reassurance. Gold has the game of the century once again between number two LSU and number three Alabama, but it was the Tigers jumping out to a shocking 20-point first-half lead before the Tide came roaring back in the second half and setting up a shootout for the ages that culminated. Oh, dang it. Don't let nobody tell you it ain't, man. For real. Do you want to know the hardest part? The hardest part of our job is what you're doing right now. The, the, the tape stand-up, hate them. I hate them, man, because it ain't like if, if you're live and you kind of mess up, whatever, you just keep on digging. This thing, you want to be just perfect. I can't stand them. Kill them. You mind if I get a picture right now? No, no, Because I am a huge fan. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for everything you, you do, got it, brother. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for the advice. Keep plowing. You're doing a good job. Thank you, sir. What transpired in the aftermath of that, I, I, I don't know that I can even articulate. And as we spoke about earlier, I don't make a habit of looking at social media. So when I woke up one morning in the aftermath of the LSU-Alabama game, I, I had dozens of text messages. Dozens. And when you wake up to that, you wonder what the hell's wrong. And I'm kind of scrolling through, and I see one from Shane Beamer, my dear friend who is Lincoln Riley's associate head coach at the University of Oklahoma. And it just says, I'm so glad that the world gets to see this. This is the guy that I've known since we were 18. And Shane and I played high school football against each other, and we've been very close in following one another's career paths. Uh, I adore him and his whole family, his wife, Emily, everybody. And so I didn't know what to make of it. So I walk in the kitchen. I wanted to be alone. And another of my friends had sent a, an Internet link. Might have even been you. Might have even been Travis. And so I click this link and I see the video. And I was humbled. I was honored that. Jack took the time to show this amazing, genuine moment between him and me. And then I got a little bit nervous because it wasn't something that I expected to be disseminated. But when you see the message, uh, I was proud of the message. And to Travis's point, he wanted to have Jack on, and I'm glad he did because my conversation with Jack really reaffirm to me what he and I are trying to do, and that is just be kind to other people. How would you even begin to describe the response to to you posting that video? The one word that always comes to my mind is surreal. The response has been surreal. How it blew up has been surreal. And the outpouring of love and kindness and you know, the fact that I put smiles on a lot of people's faces has all been surreal. That's the one word that always comes to mind. 
I agree. I mean, I, it, it's been such an odd thing for me because a lot of people have wanted me to discuss it and I wasn't inclined to discuss it because I just, I didn't, you don't do that kind of thing for any sort of reaction. You do it because you see somebody that you have been in their position. You know that frustration when you're just trying to get that one word or that two words put together in a succinct way and finish it up. And when you get it wrong and then you start to get in your own head and the frustration mounts, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so to see the, the response to it and the overwhelming amount of kindness that stemmed from it was so wonderful to see. I, I called, I called Jack and left him a message and I said to him, because again, like I didn't, I'm glad we're doing this here on this medium, but it's not something that you want to just go say, Hey man, yeah, this is amazing because it was done genuinely, but I will. I told Jack on the message I left him that it fulfilled me every bit as much as it fulfilled him because it triggered a reaction from other journalists all over the world that, hey, man, we actually are kind of in this together. Kindness is important, and taking a moment to to cultivate that is something that we should all kind of have at the forefront of our minds. So what do you think is the, is the lesson? Now, what are we two, 10 days away, 10 days from it happening, something like that? Yeah, well, it's about 10 days, but I didn't post that to say, you know, you know, for it to go viral. I had no idea it would go viral. You know, I honestly thought it was just the coolest thing in the world that you stopped you know, and I had no idea what your, what your day had been like. I didn't know until you had read for, um, you, the article that came out in the Athletic yesterday, the other day. Um, but you, I, before that, I had never met you and I had, you had no idea who I was and you just thought, uh, you know, for you to come and just give me a little bit of encouragement when that was for me. I was getting frustrated with myself because that was like take seven or eight and you had, you didn't have to do it. And you just thought, I, you know, you thought, Hey man, let me give this kid some confidence, you know, give him a little bit of advice, encouragement. And for somebody who's been following you since you were doing NASCAR for ESPN, man, that meant the world to me. That honestly well, meant the world to me. I well, Likewise, I had no idea until, until the athletic, reached out to both of us and and wanted our perspective on what happened i had no idea that you were brand new on air (laughs) i didn't i didn't know that i didn't know anything and i will say though man i gotta know all right there's a couple things i need to know first of all what what was going through your mind when when i walked up there First, the first thing was like, man, dang it, I messed up. And I I was so frustrated because I was getting too fancy and trying to add a little too much from what I had, the thought I had in my mind. And then you can see the reaction on my face when I realized who it is that's talking to me. And I'm like, yo, like, <laughs> this is Marty freaking Smith. Like, 
like I'm like I said, I'm a legit fan. Like I follow your story. The funny thing was, I had just ordered your book like two days before this happened. Shut up! No way, man. Seriously. That's awesome. I had I got ordered, I had. <laughs> I de- I would definitely welcome that, but I had just ordered it like a couple days before, and I'm like, man. And when I when I see that, I'm like, dude, this is somebody that you see on Sports Center every day. This is somebody that you follow, you know that you know you legitimately want to be like one day. And he's so and he's talking to you. Like that that blew my mind. What's it been like to be to be so recognizable now? And what's it been like in 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 the aftermath for you? Because I imagine. That first of all, I, I know that so many media outlets have wanted to chat with you about it. I know that your Twitter following has exploded. I know that you know your colleagues at your station like love you. I've met a few of them in the aftermath. I had the Auburn Georgia game, and I met a couple of them there, and they just gushed about what an amazing person you are, and that this was the mo- you deserve this moment. Because of how hard you work, how kind you are, your body of work at that station. What's all, what, what's it been like to experience this and how has it impacted your life or changed your life? Oh man, it's been different and it's been different because I'm not used to being the center of attention. Like I'm always the guy that, you know, I I always try to put others first. You know, I, you know, and it may, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it might be my fatal flaw, but I always put other people first and I always try to help others out. And so to be the center of attention, it's, it's definitely been different. And I've had, you know, I've had people when I'm going out on stories, you know, when I'm covering teams practicing and everything, I've got players like, Hey man, you're the guy on Twitter. that was with Marty Smith. I'm like, wait, what? And coaches are like, Hey man, don't forget us little people when you go a big time. <laughs> You're going to hear that for the rest of time, brother. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> I, I, what I try to tell everybody, man, is like, man, that, that reaction that I had, man, that was, that was just me. And that's what I, I think that's the most important thing I've tried to emphasize is that, you know, I, I just try to be myself, you know? And being myself is, you know, one of the big things I was raised on is treating people right, showing people that you care, and, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be kind to somebody. Absolutely, man. I preach it all the time. Kindness wins. And in, in, in a world, that's another interesting part of this for me. It completely reinstilled my confidence that the, the person that, that I hope I am can that passion for kindness and empathy and taking a moment to try to see the world through somebody else's perspective might just matter. Because I hate social media. I think it's a cesspool. Uh, I think it's, it's, I don't look at my mentions ever. I, I said this to the folks in the athletic and I might have said, said this to you in the aftermath when you and I FaceTimed the other night. I don't look at my mentions for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is, is insecurity. I don't like to look at something that's telling me you're a piece of shit. I don't like looking at something that tells me 
why don't you get fired? I don't like looking at something that says, I hope you die tomorrow. It's just not something I'm really that into. So I don't. And I did not know that you posted it by looking at social media. I knew that you posted it by the overwhelming reaction on my on text when I woke up the next morning from college football coaches and college basketball coaches and colleagues and people inside these programs and friends of mine. I mean, like dozens of texts. That's when I knew, wait a minute, man, something's going down. And it was funny because the first couple were like my heart started racing, like, what the hell is what's going on? I don't know. <laughs> and then I saw, I saw a, a text from Shane Beamer, Lincoln Riley's associate head coach at Oklahoma, mm-hmm. who's like a brother to me. And it just really filled up my tank to see that that many people cared that deeply about that moment. And so I am grateful to you that you gave the world that moment. And I want you to know, as I said to you the other night, I want you to know that it filled up my tank and fulfilled me every bit as much as it did you. And to see my wife's reaction was really the one that that solidified it for me. To see her reaction to it, watching it over and over and over again, and the joy that it brought her and how much she just loved you, like just loved that. Authentic, that was an authentic moment between us and uh man it mattered and i appreciate you oh man uh, words really can't describe how much it meant to me man um just the outpouring of support that it came, that came afterwards and like i said the one the probably the best thing that came out is just the fact that it made so many people happy and you're right, social media can be, it can be ugly a lot. And to be able to put out that kind of positivity, like I said, I had no idea it was going to blow up the way it did, but to see so many people still to this day, like right even before I got on this call, you know, there's still people liking and retweeting it and saying, man, this is fantastic. This is awesome. This might be the best tweet I've seen in a long time. I'll ask you one more thing, brother, and I'll let you go. But what what are your dreams in TV? What do you want to do? Well, the funny thing, man, is you, you know you spoke on this earlier. Like I just I just started my on air position back on October fifth. I had worked behind the scenes at the station. I was a, in the production department for almost seven years, and this was you know doing sports full time had always been my dream, and. At 27, I had the opportunity, you know, I'm 27 years old now. I had the opportunity to go, you know, go after this position. And this was kind of like my now or never moment. Like, if I'm going to do this, you know, this is it. This is your opportunity. So I went after it and got it. And now that I'm here and, you know, I've had many moments before this that I felt like, man, I made the right decision. Like, this is what I was born to do. Um, and then this kind of just like, yeah, Jack, you made the right decision. And as far as what I want to do in the future, man, gosh, the sky's really the limit. Um, I, I love to make it up bigger. Like, you know, the absolute dream would be to be work at the worldwide leader, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know many people who wouldn't want to work 
at ESPN in our industry, like, you know, sign me up if that, if somebody comes and calls my numbers, like, hey, Jack, you want to work at ESPN? Like, obviously, I'm not turning that down. Are you kidding? But, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, wherever the Lord's staff takes me, man, I'm 100% full board with it, but I just love, I love sports and I love telling people's stories. If I can do those two things, I'll be a happy person. And that's really what it comes down to. Don't stop. Yes, it is. Keep plowing. And it's uh it it's so wonderful to to have had that moment with you and I'm honored and humbled that that it happened. So anyway, thanks for hanging out with us, brother, and we appreciate you so much and you're in the family now, man. Sorry, we're like uh we're hard to get rid of once once you got us. So, congratulations mm-hmm. and uh, whatever we can do, we're here to help you. Dude, it's a blessing, man. I appreciate everything, and thank you for just being you, man. Because that's what, that's the start of all this is just you being you, and I greatly appreciate it. And thank you for being somebody I can look up to. Appreciate you, man. Have an awesome day. You too, man. Fills up my tank to be around people like Jack. I meant what I said to him. He can do whatever he wants in his business. He's obviously been kind to everybody with whom he comes into contact at his station. And that says all you need to know about what a special young man he is. And I'm a better man for having met him. I'm a better man for having learned his influence on those other people. And the glee the unmitigated joy they have that he's having this moment. I'm thrilled for him. If y'all want to hire Jack, you might want to go to ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Just ask Dylan Miskowitz. He needed a coffee director for his organic coffee company. He's the COO of Cafe Altura, and he really needed that director of coffee, but he was struggling to find qualified applicants. So he went to ZipRecruiter. Because ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. If you're looking for a great reporter, go to ZipRecruiter. You might see Jack on there. It's technology identifies people with the right experience, and it invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates immediately. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter, and he was so impressed with how quickly it found candidates. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter those applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. That's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in only a couple days. With results like that, it's no wonder four of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter have quality candidates in the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-Y. ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. All right, so I got, before we get out of here, Marty, I have one little question for you. Well, yeah. Uh, so you were at a wedding of one Dan Lebetard. It was um, amazing night. Yes. Were you unaware of the uh, the rules for this wedding? Oh, Lord. Uh, yes, I was unaware of the rules. And so I kind of came hood sliding in there like Bo Duke from the Auburn, Georgia game. Did you come in parachuting in? That's what Dan expected of me. I did walk in on my own two feet in, no less, a pair of 
black toe Jordan one low tops. Everybody there was like, holy smokes, bro. Your feet are on fire. You're more presentable than Stugatz, that was for sure. Yes, I was. Uh, I'm convinced, by the way, that my appearance at Dan's wedding put a lot of pressure on him to be there. Anyway, um, yeah, Dan had told a few people that he didn't want a bunch of information out there on social media or pictures disseminated on social media or at least to embargo them for a while. I think was what he told him. I didn't know that. He didn't say that to me. And so I, you know, I'm sitting there, man. I'm so excited to be there. I'm, I'm seeing Mike Ryan. I'm seeing, uh, Dominique Foxworth. I'm seeing Amin El Hassan. I'm seeing Billy. I'm seeing Roy. Like it's like a reunion. It's awesome. And, and Sarah Spain and Mina Kimes and everybody involved in the, in the Levitard and Friends Network. So it was just really cool. I've never hung out with those guys. I've been on TV with them. I certainly admire their work, but I've never hung out with them. Man, this is badass. And so I'm just happy for my friend. Like, you don't understand. Y'all don't understand what Dan Levitard means to me. So he's walking in with Valerie. She looks absolutely stunning. Dan's wearing a tie. Like, what world is this? So I just capture a little video. And I just put it on my social media, whatever, no big deal. Well, it was a big deal. And I didn't realize the situation at hand. So long story short, uh, I had to go on an apology tour. I talked to Dan about it, and he was like, man, don't even don't worry about it. I told some people. I didn't tell. It's all good. Don't worry about it. And what I, I was mortified because I thought that I had upset not just Dan, but some other people that were there. And I did. I mean, I called a lot of people to make sure that they were not upset with me and that it was not done with any malice whatsoever, that it was an honest mistake. And, you know, Dan, first of all, said, man, don't even think another thing about it. Y'all need to understand one thing. Like what that I've had people throughout my career who have believed in me and who have appreciated a certain brand of storytelling that I do. And that I'm willing to have fun and be self-deprecating within that type of storytelling. And Dan Lebetard is way, way up on top of that list. He's one of the four or five most influential people in my career. I go out in public all the time and more people say to me, man, I love you on Lebetard than anything else. And I can't. Uh, the, the the thought of upsetting him, the thought of disappointing him gutted me. And I spent my whole Sunday morning into afternoon wanting to take a nap in the aftermath of his wedding. But I had to talk to him because I, I never want to disappoint somebody that's been that kind to me. And so... The thought that I could even begin to compromise that mortified me. I was like, my heart was racing out of my chest. I felt like I was going to throw up. And until I saw his reaction, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't focus on anything else. I couldn't be anywhere else. I like, I, it, I'm just glad that it didn't upset anyone in the long term. And even talking about it makes my heart race. I listen, I love Dan Lebetard. And I love those people that were in that room that night. What an honor to be invited. And 
the very concept of compromising that gutted me. And it's a thing that, that, you know, in, I'm not quite there yet, bro. It's only been three days or four days removed now. In a year, when I'm down there in studio with those guys, I'll be willing to laugh about it. But I'm still not quite there yet. I have solaced that everybody's cool with it, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't enjoy, I still, I'm not ready. I'm not really there yet. And that is the Marty Smith America podcast, volume 80. Make sure you guys listen to Mina and listen to Sarah. I'm going to be on Sarah's podcast real soon. Look forward to that. And, uh, and they're doing brilliant work. As I said earlier, uh, everything that's involved in the Levitard and Friends network is, is amazing. And I'm so blessed to be a part of that. Thank you so much, Travis, for getting us J.B. Mooney. Thank you to J.B. for your time and your insight. One of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Thank you so much to our local law enforcement, our first responders, our firemen, policemen, and women uh, for keeping our community safe and putting yourselves in harm's way all the time. I really appreciate our military. Having had time earlier this year to spend a day with the 5th Special Forces Group gave me even greater insight to what they do for us every day. And what they do for us every day is heroic beyond words. And I'm so grateful to our servicemen and women all over the world for working hard and sacrificing to keep us free. Thank you. Y'all have an awesome day and an awesome week. And thank you so much for being devoted listeners to Marty Smith's America. I was at the, I was at a concert on Sunday night and I had a guy walk up to me and talk to me extensively about the Travis Tritt interview. And as I was talking to that guy, another guy walked up and heard what we were talking about, and he brought up the Jeff Arnett interview. And I'll be damned if not one hour later, Jeff Arnett didn't walk up to me. In the bowels of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, Jeff walks over to me, and other Jack Daniels executives walk over to me, and they they, they just couldn't have said more about the feedback that they've gotten from that interview that that Jeff and I did together. Maybe we'll talk about this next week. Remind me, we'll talk about my conversation with Jeff uh, at the the stadium next week. Uh, I got got some plans this offseason for going to Lynchburg. So we might might have a cool thing coming up. But anyway, thank you all for being devoted to this because we love doing it and we appreciate you guys so much for – for being listeners. That's Marty Smith's America, Volume 80. Y'all have an awesome week.